0: Here we go, today is Sunday, February 6th. Two thousand twenty two. This is episode two hundred and sixty-two of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight as always is Mr. Andrew Kellett.
1: Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir?
0: As usual, so good it hurts. How are you?
1: I'm I'm doing fairly well. Fairly well. Getting through, you know. Sunday. Suddenly that Monday is looming out there like a dumpster fire coming at me.
0: It's coming. It's coming. So, just a uh, reminder that the thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So, getting into some stories. First one comes from Dark Reading, and the title here is "The Three Most Common Causes of Data Breaches in 2021." This is a, a article about a report by the ITRC and. Uh, it's it's a it, it is a kind of a mini version of the data breach, the Verizon DBIR, I would say. There's one interesting nugget in here that I I thought worth uh, discussing, and that was the dichotomy between the number of attacks from phishing versus the number of attacks from the result from or successful attacks that result from unpatched software
1: go on sir
0: it's so so there were in 2021 there were four unpatched software flaws and four zero day attacks and there were 537 attacks uh, via phishing and business email compromises so uh, like a hundred times more
1: so does that mean we should just all stop patching
0: no but I I, I think it in my mind, it points out the kind of the discontinuity between the amount of effort we put into patching versus the amount of effort that we put into protecting against things like phishing and business email compromises. Because I mean most yeah, organizations good. like have spend a lot of effort and a lot of money on patching.
1: So does that mean that those patching defense is working? So the bad guys are having to shift to a different vector. To be successful,
0: well, um, possibly, but I would say I'm I'm skeptical that is the, the case because you you know there's all sorts of reports, including um, the the CISA in the U S. running af- you know running around with a new list of um, top vulnerabilities that bad actors are exploiting. I actually think that the companies are not. Particularly great at patching, still, but I, I think that it's an easier and a more direct route for the adversaries to get to what they want through phishing and b- business email compromises. I mean, that's you know, fair. exploiting vulnerabilities this is like that's work. That's I know it's, that's it's just, work.
1: This is one of those statistical puzzles of how do you analyze it. Properly in a vacuum to draw a good conclusion, without control groups and large-scale tests, and you could spin it to say whatever you wanted to say. Almost,
0: yeah, yeah. I just thought it was just thought it was interesting.
1: It is interesting, and I think you're right. Like if I look at any budget I've been involved with, we probably spend dramatically more on patching than we do on. Defending against business email compromise. Right. And, I mean, that could be an evolution in some ways. In InfoSec, we're always kind of fighting the last war, to steal a phrase from the military. We're always kind of building up defenses against the previous thing that was painful.
0: Uh, Very clearly so, yes. So,
1: and the bad guys are constantly shifting their approach. And so, I don't know, it's interesting. Is it because we have gotten reasonably decent enough at patching that the bad guys have shifted or is it they're just, it's easier to do it via social engineering. I don't know. There's a whole lot of things. I think by the way, these things play together in that when we see people get fished or social engineering to get a footprint or, or a foothold in an environment, often then the next step that the bad guys take can very well be impacted by how well you're patched
0: yeah that's certainly true. and when you look at when you look at the different categories of of uh, attack types, they're a little contrived and, and and somewhat muddy, like distinguishing between ransomware and malware.
1: yeah I, I, this is a frustration point for me in general. Ransomware as a general category is tough for me because ransomware, the way I view it at least, that's the payload of some other exploit typically.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And the exploit and the payload are two completely different things. And yet we treat ransomware as its own discrete attack type. It's not. It's a payload type of many different types of exploits. Right. And we can defend against ransomware as a technique for a payload, but to do only that I think ignores trying to defend against the exploit that brought the ransomware in to begin with. And there were two different conversations many in many ways. Very true. Anyway, I'm rambling a bit, but...
0: That's a good point. So that kind of dovetails into the next story, which is uh, from Leaping Computer. And the title here is FBI Shares Lockbit Ransomware Technical Details and Defense Tips. So they, they go on to talk a bit about uh, Lockbit and some of the... the new techniques or you know the, the common techniques it's using including by the way uh, I thought was quite interesting a reference to how uh, the ransomware gang here is is uh, well let me, let me take a step back and say the lockbit is one of these ransomware as a service gangs right so they provide the tool the tooling and they rely on affiliates to actually go off and find victims and do the the actual infections but um, apparently, Lockbit now is in, in their uh, in, in the message that you get when your when your computer has uh, been infected with, with their ransomware actually has a advertisement for a bounty. You um, you are you could earn millions, in fact, if you provide access uh, for for some company. To the Lockbit actors, and they give you some instructions on how to how to contact them. So I it was kind of uh, innovative, but it's it's an interesting thing because you know, like the people who see that have already been infected by Lockbit. But sure, um, you know, you know. I, hey, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> they didn't think it through very well. <laughs> um, Look,
1: Ben, when you gotta fill words on the page, you fill words on the page.
0: Yes. That's very true. That's very true. Um, they, they, do, they do talk a, a, a bit about some of the techniques here, not as much as I ha- had hoped. One of them, though, points out that they actually use Active Directory um, group policies uh, as a method of uh, de- deploying ransomware, which I thought was pretty innovative. Like, I mean, using IT tools in the way that IT tools were intended to do you know to work, but for nefarious purposes. It's, it's
1: Are we at a point that we can call Active Directory an affiliate of ransomware groups, unwittingly? I think so. I mean, I mean, that's
0: kind of been the subtext of like the past eight years of this podcast. I think.
1: Do you think Microsoft should start getting a cut of all these ransomwares?
0: Uh, it's you know, if they're not, it, they sh- they probably should.
1: I mean. It seems like their software is being used. Right. Facilitating it. Right.
0: There should be some kind of royalties or something.
1: Hmm. I'll call up Steve Ballmer and suggest it. <laughs> it's a great idea. It's a great
0: idea. So they do give some <clears throat> some recommendations on how to defend your network against Lockbit, they being the FBI. The uh, first one is to remove all accounts with password, or sorry, require all accounts with password logins to have strong and unique passwords. Require, yeah, yeah, which I don't know what to say if you're not doing that at this point. Require multi-factor authentication for all, all services to the extent possible. And that is the one that I wanted to talk about for a second. Because it's that, to the extent possible it seems like it gives us like this wide out
1: well the problem is service accounts and and non-interactive logins and there's a whole bunch of you know machine machine authentication that's being abused that cannot easily have any sort of multi-factor
0: well that's that's certainly true um or do you also
1: mean like unless it just annoys Bob from accounting?
0: Yeah, well, I I think there's a there is there is certainly that, but then there's also well, you know the the application that we want to deploy it doesn't support multi-factor, and therefore, you know, it just won't have multi-factor. Like we we have it to the extent possible, but that application just doesn't support it. One of the things I think we have to start getting to is this. You know, a, a place where we're defining kind of minimum, like minimum criteria for systems that we're going to deploy. Like it, you know, the, we shouldn't be deploying applications these days that can't support multi-factor authentication. Period. And then we should be obviously turning it on and requiring it. That was my point. I, I agree with you on on the service cost, but you know where where that ha, ha, where that is the case. By the way you should be looking to apply other mitigations like limiting, you know, to and from where, where those connections can originate from again, still not a guarantee, but you know, it can help. Yeah. Makes sense. Keep all operating systems and software up to date.
1: We just of, determined that isn't necessary
0: because we know that's, it just solves everything. Remove unnecessary access to administrative shares. Yeah. That also makes sense. Use a host-based firewall to only allow connections to administrative shares via SMB from a limited set of administrator machines, and those administrator machines should also be well protected, by the way. As we talked about last week, probably not have internet access. Enable protected files in the Windows operating system to prevent unauthorized changes to critical files.
1: They go from like very generic to like very specific, very quickly there,
0: yeah, yeah. I, well, I think they're I think they're reacting to what they see with this particular actor. Yeah. Uh, so then they go on to say, "Edmunds can hinder ransomware operators' network discovery efforts by taking these measures: segment the network to prevent spread of malware."
1: Okay. Yes, but that's so generic. Okay. Mm. <laughs> if the malware is spreading. Via Active Directory and via Windows connections and via that sort of... Segmenting is one thing. I think what they really mean is limiting the ability for hosts to speak to other hosts with those types of protocols and those types of connections. Ah,
0: You're on a great point. Because if you ask 10 IT people what it means to segment your network, you're going to get 10 different answers, aren't you?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I yeah, that, that drives me a little crazy. Okay. Yeah, I don't disagree with segmenting, but what does that mean? Like what is the intent behind the segmentation?
0: Well clearly and, if the ransomware can still spread, you have not properly segmented your network.
1: I can have my network broken up into twenty-eight little segments with no firewall in between it and no limits between it. And is that segmented?
0: Can the ransomware spread? Can your mom spread? Oh, my god. Here we go again. <laughs>
1: I meant, I mean i mean, like butter on toast what are you thinking sicko
0: uh-huh, uh-huh. um th- these are the pro- these are some of the issues with the kind of the platitude level security recommendations you know that there is not a consensus on what that means and so I think you know if you have a if you have a, a diligent i a business leader pick this Article up and say, or the FBI's recommendations up and say to to his uh, or her IT team, hey, we need to segment our networks. Okay, well, you know, the answer might be, well, our networks are segmented. The you know, the servers are over there, <laughs> everything else is over here. Is is that you know? I I I think we we have to get to the point now where we need to we need to provide a little more um, yeah, detail.
1: I- and let's say you're in a cloud environment. What does that mean? You're in AWS, you're in GCP, you're in Oracle, you're in IBM. Wait, what, what does that mean in their vernacular? How do you do it there? Mm-hmm. There's, yeah. We can do better.
0: Yep. Next is identify, detect, and investigate abnormal activity, I guess like cyber poltergeist, and potential traversal of the indicated ransomware with a network monitoring tool.
1: You didn't move the bodies. You built a data center on the graveyard and you didn't move the bodies.
0: It was gonna happen sooner or later. Let's just be clear.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Cyber hmm
1: I like it. Has anyone registered cyberpoltergeist.com? If not, we really should. Before the show airs. Nobody,
0: nobody knows how to spell poltergeist anyway. So <laughs> <it's>,
1: That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> um Okay, again, I don't disagree, but that's also a lot of voodoo. That's like, okay, what's the TTP? What's the IOCs of a particular ransomware? Network monitoring tool, okay, again, cloud environments don't work the same way. How are you going to look forward in a cloud environment? Again, I'm not – look, I'm I'm happy for the recommendations. I'm not trying to, like – be too critical because I'm glad they're recommending stuff. I just realized, okay, if the executive walks in and drops this on the desk, you're like, okay, this is a lot of words that mean stuff, but there's a lot to unpack here. Right.
0: Yeah. And I, I think the ability of, of companies to implement this stuff is going to be pretty, you know, pretty different too. Like, uh, you know, this is, this to me is anomaly detection. Right, so it's looking. Sure. It's looking for um, anomalous network flows. Well, you know, if you do that, that's presumes that you, a, know what normal network flows are, and b, that you have right. the tools and technology in place to be able to monitor it. C, you have the people that actually, you know, run all this stuff. And you know, if you're a small shop with like, you know, some some bubble gum and tape this is going to, this is a, a level of sophistication you might not be able to do. But again, then, like, what is it? Well, <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of prescription yet. So it kind of points to me. Like we, I think as an industry, we need to start not necessarily as mandates, but like almost like reference architectures. Like here's yeah, when, when yeah, somebody great. says segment your network, like this is what they're talking about. When someone says, you know, look, Implement multi-factor authentication. This is what they're talking about, and 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 things like that, so that we, you know, we we t- dispel some of the um, kind of individual interpretations of
1: these. yeah. We keep reinventing the wheel over and over and over again. Right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh,
0: implement time-based access for accounts set at admin level set at the admin level and higher. So that's fair. I mean, it seems like a good idea, yeah. Uh, disable command line and scripting activities and permissions. Yeah, maybe depends on the environment what people do. Probably hose yep, up if you're actually using that. Right. Maintain this. This one I think is pretty damn important. Maintain offline backups of data and regularly maintain backup and back, backup and restoration. Yeah. Ensure all backup data is encrypted, which. I mean, I guess the ransomware can do that for you, immutable and covers the entire organization's data infrastructure.
1: I agreed. Although a fun exercise is estimate how long it take to restore all of that.
0: Yeah, that, you know, we've we've talked about that and in the long ago past, you know yeah. that that is a big problem. You know, even if you have all of your data backed up and you you may end up still being in a, in bad shape because it could take you six months or a year to or, you know, to restore all the data that you diligently backed up. So then they go on, the article goes on to talk about how uh, the FBI rec- strongly recommends that nobody pay the ransom, but they understand if you need to, and by the way, if you do need to, you should report that to the FBI, which is probably not a, necessarily a bad idea because I think in at least one case recently the FBI was able to get some of the money back yeah I don't know
1: it seems fraught with peril no matter what happens
0: yeah I agree All right, the last uh, let's see Yeah, here next is uh, disclosure this comes from darkrading.com and in the, in the, uh, the title here is disclosure panic patch can we do better this is a follow-on from some of the things we've talked about recently with um, with Log4j and the recent Windows vulnerability. And it talks about some industry initiatives to try to f- fix the, the problems kind of foundationally. And in, spe- in particular, they talk about this uh, group called the Open Source Security Foundation and how that group is intended are intending to target 10,000 uh, open source software packages and try to improve the security of those one of the f- one of the fundamental uh, kind of premises of this is this this whole article and lots of discussion in the industry right now is that many tech companies in particular but even beyond just tech companies take you know wide advantage of open source software, but they don't really contribute back to it. And so, you know, they're kind of the beneficiaries. And then, you know, when, when the crap hits the fan with a, with some kind of vulnerability, you know, everybody's stands around and throws rocks at, at the people who create the stuff. And so the, the point here is, well, everybody, sh- you know, everybody who can should be contributing a lot more and, boy would, you know, that would really change the dynamic and we wouldn't end up with things like log4j and whatnot. But, you know, one of the, in in the premise there being, you know, with log4j, we had, and uh, most recently Polkit, which was was something we hadn't talked about yet. It was a pretty significant in that it's widely pervasive, uh, local privilege escalation vulnerability on, on most Linux distributions. The, the the implication here as, as described by the headline of this article is that like we can do a better job. We could find a way we should be able to find a, do it, but find a, a better way than somebody flinging a vulnerability disclosure out there. And then we all have to race around and patch, but I can't help but think, you know, if this, Initiative and others like it are successful. The imp, you know the, the net effect is that's going to happen more often.
1: <laughs> more vulnerabilities will be disclosed. We have to run on run around. On, yeah, on.
0: exactly, exactly. And now, you know, the the, the again, I, I maybe in the in the in the far off future, if companies can inject. Maturity into the open source development process, you know, that will pay dividends down, you know, down the road and and that these open source tools will be developed in, in a more responsible manner and not have as many vulnerabilities to have to patch. But in the short term, at least, by short term, I probably mean years. I think additional focus is just going to drive up the number of yeah. of vulnerabilities that we're we're going to see and there's probably I mean it's not hard to think that there's probably a lot of really ugly severe vulnerabilities still out there and the more money and resources we put into it the more of those we're going to find and faster and so I I think we're we're actually going to see quite kind of quite the opposite that this all you know all this effort is going to at least in in the near term you know pretty rapidly accelerate this. It's not not necessarily a bad
1: thing, but... It's like turning on a new vulnerability management tool to look at code or or systems you've never looked at before. It's going to find a lot of stuff you've never seen before because you're looking. Exactly. And people sometimes freak out at that. Exactly. You know, the other thing I'd say on this, we were talking about patching earlier, and kind of a side topic, but whether it's log4j or, uh, you know, Polcat or whatever it is, One thing that I kind of believe is that the further – the more technical debt you have, further behind you are, the more impactful these mass patching problems become. If you're up to date, you have usually a point patch that you have to move to. If you're really behind – It's usually a multiple version upgrade, which is far more potentially impactful, far more scary, far more, you know, testing involved. So I I almost want to say to a lot of folks, hey, you know, part of the reason you want to keep up to date on your patching is not just for what might be there, but what might be coming you don't know about and making it less scary or less impactful to solve that point problem which is probably not a very elegant way to say what I just said, but
0: <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Keeping keeping up is super super important, um, and and you know is one of the i the idyllic benefits of you know of of uh, CICD, you know where right. where you are continually integrating the last you know adopting incorporating the, the latest updates of all of your dependencies and. You, know, you should never be so far behind and that, that helps you like at some point the the thing that you're referring to, like there's breaking changes, like the, the yeah. something you know, PHP or, or log4j or whatever, like it fundamentally changes. It goes from one version to another version and it, there's a compatibility problem. And, and if you stack a bunch of those together because you haven't addressed it in eight years that's really daunting but if like you're yeah. you're doing that on a regular basis not only not only is it easier to do the people your your people um, are much more familiar with the code base and it should be easier even still it should be easier to get to get through so I complete you, you're absolutely right there. So um,
1: it's a tough problem. Like a lot of times, you know, tech ops organizations are like, Hey, we're on a version that's stable. We don't want to mess with it. Yeah. But these are the downsides. If you wait too long and you get too many versions behind, when a crisis happens, you're now doing, you know, you've been sitting on a couch. We're asking you to go run a marathon. It's not going to be easy.
0: Right. Right. You got code that nobody's looked at in four years.
1: As opposed to, hey, you run a little bit every day. It's not that bad. Exactly. But it's a mindset, and and it's it's not always easy, but it's easy to talk about. It's tough to do. Anyway, carry on.
0: All right. The last story we have comes from CSO Online, and the title here is DHS creates a cyber safety review board to review significant cybersecurity incidents.
1: That'll fix everything.
0: Woohoo! So the. Intention. This is, by the way, a outcome of the executive order that was uh, put in place at the beginning of last year, I believe it was. And it's kind of loosely modeled after the NTSB, but as this article goes on to point out, there's there's some pretty material differences between what's being proposed here and, or well, that's not really being proposed, but what's being implemented here, and what the NTSB is and how they operate, you know, one of the most significant things is, um, you know, the NTSB actually kind of operates in a, in a regulated environment. You know, they're they're like the, the people or the organizations that they are working with are regulated. And, And so there's, there's, you know, there's an incentive for those, you know, the airlines, the air, the airplane manufacturers, kind of the, the whole supply chain to cooperate because, like, they have to. And we don't really have that kind of a situation in the IT world. So it's going to be interesting to see how that that plays out. But having said that, it does seem to make sense that we would, um, we would actually have some kind of formal um, – you know, oversight or, or you know, formal introspection into these things to figure out like how can we do better? The thing, one of the things that concerns me, I, I, I'm a little split on this. Right, when you look at who the participants in this are, it's a lot of security people, a lot of like security vendors who clearly have the solution to whatever problem will be found by the cyber safety review board. So that that is a concern to me, but sure. but on the other hand, like if you don't have those people, then you don't have the like the best and the brightest participating. So I don't know. <laughs> I, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. Well, it's
1: I, I'm not against it. Um, I, I'm always skeptical of government trying to fix things because that's just I'm you know crazy libertarian at heart, uh, but. There's so many di- like so many people are trying to say well we need to do things like the NTSB, like you mentioned, but there's so many differences that I don't think people who aren't involved in aviation really understand. Uh, you know, aviation is like you mentioned, incredibly regulated. It's also incredibly slow to innovate and incredibly costly to innovate as a result because everything is so regulated, which is the antithesis of the IT world. We're, we're innovating incredibly rapidly all the time. Uh, you know, so the second order effects I'm thinking about is, okay, let's say we come out of this with potential insights that become potential law. I don't know. I'm just projecting out. The second order costs of trying to apply some sort of regulatory oversight to IT are massive and underestimated, I think. Massively underestimated. Uh, you know, there's the, – the other thing is a lot of what aviation risk management is is understanding risk factors and building regulations around those, right? We know fatigue causes mistakes. We know Landing in certain circumstances, a certain amount of winds is, is beyond the capabilities of the aircraft. It's very static risk environments that are updated over time, but are, are finite and unchanging in general because of how regulated the environment is, as opposed to IT, which is changing all the damn time. Sure, we have new airliners come out. We have things that get introduced. I'm really oversimplifying this, but I'm saying the state of change in aviation is incredibly slow, in part because of this.
0: Yeah, and you don't, you, thing, don't, you don't have hobbyists like building airplane parts well, in their basement either.
1: <laughs> you do in the experimental category, That's, but it's very limited. Like if they crash and kill, it's usually just themselves. So that's the next thing I want to talk about is all these rules regulations also apply to the pilots and the maintenance and the dispatch and ATC and all these folks who, again, have this very rigid – methodology that they have to follow at least in commercial aviation and if they don't they lose their license to operate right and that's very heavily enforced like you mentioned we don't have any of that in it with a credit card you can spin up a data center in aws in about two hours right so and i don't know that we necessarily want to lose that freedom either you know Mm -hmm. so Mind you, we're talking about in aviation, when things go bad, people usually die. Um, Here, you know, a couple other quick things, and I could go on and on and on on this. I won't, though. Let's say this review board starts doing good investigation. We'll come back to that in a minute. How many more times do we have to hear that this was a human error or accepted risk by business that caused this outage or or this problem? Like how many times can we hear from the review board, you know, that you should use two-factor authentication, you know, you should really tighten your S3 bucket settings. You know, you really should train your people not to fall for phishing. I feel like we know the problems.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. They did say uh, that they're going to be focusing on Log4j to begin to to start with. Okay. Which which you know, I I I can't help but wonder like what is the outcome of that like you know, that one guy back in 2011 or whatever it was, like he made a, you know, he, on his own time, he made a bad decision.
1: I, well, you know what I think is going to happen is they'll probably come up with, with stuff that will be enforced by federal buying rules of like, well, you sure. have to go through these new audits or these new whatever. Sure. Um, you know, but I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm not against it because it's one more thing that, we in security can bring to our executives and say, hey, you know, the cyber review board says that not having two factors is causing these problems. We should really get two. I feel like this is more a matter of almost back to like, hey, if they want to put out reference architecture, that would be helpful. Um, you know, the other thing I was thinking about, I know I'm bouncing all over here, but my notes are a little scattered on this. Legal liability is going to come into play too. How much are you going to disclose to this board? If you – we already see this a lot with cyber attacks and legal liability issues and lawyers getting involved and that sort of thing. So that that could stymie them a little bit in getting to, to the truth of the matter of certain – like if they want to look into certain big breaches. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not against it. I just – I really feel if they think they're going to get the same results as the NTSB – and here's the one other thing about the NTSB. They have no rulemaking authority. All they can do is recommend to the FAA. Right. And the FAA makes the rules,
0: but they're and but the they're FAA, but but they have uh, they have a, such a reputation that I think people pay attention, not, and not just do. in the U.S., right, like worldwide.
1: They do, but the FAA and the NTSB are often fighting over recommendations. Like the NTSB gets really frustrated mm-hmm. that there's a whole bunch of recommendations they bring out for the FAA, and the FAA ignores them because the FAA has a dual mandate. Uh, and I know I'm getting way in the weeds of aviation. I'm sorry, but The FAA also is trying to keep costs under control where the NTSB really doesn't care as much. So I'll give you an example. Um, The NTSB right now is recommending carbon monoxide detectors for all aircraft. That's a very costly change for a lot of people especially general general aviation aircraft. I carry a portable carbon monoxide detector. I see the value in it. It makes perfect sense. However, the NDSP has been saying for years, we need carbon monoxide de- detectors in aircraft. FAA has resisted making that a rule. So th- you start scaling this up, by the way, and it gets even more complicated. We start talking about airliners. And you're talking about cost of retrofitting airliners and all this sort of jazz. So to then try to take that monolithic, crazy regulatory environment and drop it over IT, it's just not the same there's there's just no structure for that so I, I guess where i'm really going with this is if people expect the same outcome or the same type of working structures the ntsb i think they're, they're they're in for a surprise because it's just such a vastly different environment i look it, i'm just ranting about aviation so i'll just be quiet but um but I do think it's interesting. I, I, I like the uh, the idea of reviewing in a non-biased way without necessarily vendor bias. Here's what the common problems are.
0: Yeah, I, and which hopefully hopefully I'm going to I'm going to stay on the optimistic side. We find a way through this and it it, it actually turns into something useful and not not a overbearing government bureaucracy.
1: Yeah. And by the way, the people on it, we know a couple of them. They're, they're, they're good talented people. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So we'll, we'll see. I just,
0: mm,
1: we'll see what happens. Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, that is all the stories for today. Thank you again for listening. Hope you found this useful. I, um, uh, by the way, I'm I'm going to be changing. Hopefully, uh, should be not noticeable. I'm going to be changing how the podcast is hosted. I'm going to uh, a commercial hosting service. So you, you'll, uh, I, like I said, I don't think it'll affect anything. But uh, you know, if 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 you do, please have patience. Is
1: this because of all the protests over our spread of misinformation?
0: Yes, yes, the cyber fake news epidemic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> being deplatformed
1: uh i cracked myself up anyway thank you all for listening we're trying to do this more regularly i i hopefully will you know still provide some value to you guys and you still find the show useful and valuable and i feel like we're finally kind of get back in the groove after shaking some of the rust off but uh yeah. so glad you guys are still out there with us
0: i uh, i haven't done that i haven't Done the math, but I think we may have uh, already recorded more episodes in 2022 than we did in all of 2021. So we're on a good trajectory. Indeed. All right. Um, just a reminder that you can find Mr. Kellett on Twitter at lurg That's L E R G. And you can follow me on Twitter at Malicious Link. And uh, you can find the, the show on the web at www.defensivesecurity.org. And with that, we'll talk again soon.
1: Have a great week, everybody.
0: Bye-bye. Bye.